is currently a trial, which we've just started, where we are doing upfront treatment with resection plus gametile, letting that work for several weeks, four weeks, and then afterwards supplementing with a lower dose of radiation and chemotherapy. And the hope is that could this move the needle in these patients with these horrible tumors, which hasn't been changed at all for decades. And so the hope is that by doing this implantation upfront, these patients are actually going to have a much better quality of life, live longer, and have a much longer progression-free survival for these tumors. Brain tumors are a very scary thing, and rightfully so, because that's a very intimate structure that's extremely important. Today, I talked with Dr. Jay McCracken of Piedmont Hospital, who is a neurosurgeon specifically for cancer, so basically neurosurgery in oncology. And we talk about all kinds of things, meningiomas, are they cancer or are they not cancer? Glioblastomas, one of the most dreaded diagnoses in the cancer world. Radiation, surgery, and how we can have more precise radiation delivery and quicker delivery to hopefully reduce long-term side effects when we're able to control disease for a long time. Dr. McCracken, we're super excited to have you. Thank you, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Tell me what made you, if I may, for a second, because obviously neurosurgery is super grueling. What made you decide to go into neurosurgery? Well, I really like the anatomy of it all. I like the challenge. I just like the way that the brain and the spine functioned. And I liked how much more complex it was than any other system of the, of the body. So to me, it was, a, it was a combination of all those things while still being able to use my hands to help actually fix people as well. Is neurosurgery residency as terrible as everyone says it is? I mean, even a nerdy medical, not cool surgeon people just, you know, it just seems grueling. Well, it's, it's seven years, base seven years, usually a year or two of research built into that. Um, the first couple of years are really the most challenging. Uh, a lot of hard work as young residents. As we get older in the training, you get to do quite a bit more. And then once you finish, you move on to a fellowship, which can either be one to two years. So in all, it's, it could be anywhere from seven to nine years of training after medical school. So it's tough, but I think if you love it, it's worth it. So the cool thing is you focus on like not just neurosurgery, but neurosurgery in an oncologic space, meaning like cancer-related stuff. And I have to ask, though, what made you decide on cancer specifically? Because there's, there's so many things about the brain and spinal cord, and if people don't know, it's how I learned it when I was, you know, and still am treating cancer patients as a sanctuary. It's kind of almost a space that's different than the systemic space. We have drugs that work well in cancer that that can't penetrate, can't even get in there. It's actually, even though it's in there, it's not in there. So... That makes it really unique. And the second thing that makes it very just different than everything else is that those cells, to some degree, don't just regenerate like everything else does. You get a cut, you end up seeing the cut go away, right? You end up having, you know, like colon stuff that gets, you know, out and, and removed. But in the brain and spinal cord, hence all this stuff about stem cells and, and how do we get, you know, deficits from stroke back, it's so intimate and just almost in some way like more divine, right, than the rest of the body. And I think that's part of the reasons why, you know, I went into, you know, neurosurgical uh, oncology is that there's so many things that we can and, and can't do. Um, and we are still limited by, you know, the, the, the functional processes of the brain, right? I mean, there are still so many eloquent parts of the brain that we can and cannot go into. One of the things that I really loved about it is because the challenge of removing a tumor from somebody's brain, but being able to work around those eloquent areas to preserve language function, to preserve arm and leg function is amazing. And so we use a lot of techniques that allow us to do that. And so, you know, our sort of motto is maximal safe resection and functional preservation. And so we always have to balance how much of a tumor we can remove 
by still preserving function in the patient. And so we use things like awake craniotomy to preserve language, motor mapping, subcortical motor mapping, all these things that we can identify tracks of the brain or areas of the brain that we can't physically see to know how to keep people safe during surgery. So those tracks, you mean like basically kind of making sure they're awake while they're being operated on so that they can continue to demonstrate their speech ability and their motor ability, just because we know the anatomy really well, but it's a different thing, you know, in every person, especially when you're in there, you're waiting, you're making sure instead of waking up from anesthesia and not being able to talk, that they're still able to, you know, have those functions during the surgery. Yeah. One of the coolest things we do is an awake craniotomy where after we have initially put the patient to sleep so we can do the initial opening, open the skin, open the bone, expose the brain, we will actually wake patients up and then we go through a battery of language tests with them. So ask them to count, ask them to repeat sentences, ask them to complete sentences. All the while we are stimulating the surface of the brain to see if we can get disruptions in those language functions to identify where they're located on the surface of the brain. And we know if we do, we can't go there, we have to stop. And so it allows us to do some really cool surgery and remove a lot of tumor up to basically the breaking point of where we can't anymore. And you do that by like putting like a, a needle or a little thing in that area and just seeing if it's a problem or? So we actually have what's called a Ojimon stimulator. Uh, it's a bipolar stimulator, which emits a small current between the two probes. And as we, as we put that on the brain, it delivers a small electrical current. And what happens is it breaks those pathways temporarily. So if we're asking a patient to repeat back to us a sentence or count backwards, as soon as we stimulate that part of the brain and it breaks that language connection, you'll actually see speech arrest. So the patient will actually stop. And so we know that that's, that's part of the brain that we can't go into. And then you can obviously just shut that little transmitter off and then be like, well, we can't go there. We just pull it off the brain and, and then typically they're able to resume those functions again. I cannot imagine how disorienting that would be for someone that's like, I mean, that's anyone that has a stroke, unfortunately, experiences that. It's just wanting to say something and, you know, it's unfortunate with stroke patients and, and cancer patients, a lot of their personality changes either because of like just immense frustration that an adult just cannot conceive about being able to do something that you've done this whole time and the almost out of body experience of like of, of that same command. I mean, I can't, they, I get anxious thinking about it. They go through that every day. Right. And then the other one being really a personality change due to a, a place just like the motor and language stuff that can be kind of impaired when you put these frequencies. I guess, I don't know if people don't believe it or what, but the same exact thing does happen with like disinhibition and anger and control. Like those are very organic things that uh, I think are kind of, you know, under talked about if that's a term. Yeah. And I mean, and that's how we, we a lot of times find that patients have a tumor, right? They've come in and they've noticed progressive change in their personality or, you know, now they're more angry when they used to be so happy-go-lucky or they've had progressive weakness of their arm or leg or they're dragging their foot or they've had subtle speech, you know, issues which they haven't really chalked up to being much of anything, but then over time they've noticed that it's getting worse and worse. And so they come in and we, we find, you know, tumors on the brain because of those issues. Now, I have to ask this before we go further because I heard this a long time ago and I've just never, you know, basically reconsidered it since early in medical school. And I heard, and I hope no one freaks out if they hear this, is that if there is, if there is a brain tumor related kind of headache, that it's like one that's like right on the top and not the ones that are behind the eyeballs or the temples. And of course, you know, it's positional, but is there so, like, nobody complains that like it hurts like right here. Is that a thing? Is that literature supported? Yeah, I mean, I will tell you that in general, 
most headaches and everybody should should not worry about it. the vast majority of headaches are not related to brain tumors and so you know your first thought should not be my gosh i have got a brain tumor i need to rush off to the er because that's usually not the case headaches are so multifactorial that you know in the vast majority you know migraines tension headaches you know too much computer time too much caffeine too little caffeine you know no hydration there's so many things which cause headaches thankfully the brain does not have pain receptors and so typically we don't have focal headaches because of a brain tumor. That's the same mechanism which allows us to do an awake craniotomy. That's why we can wake somebody up at the time of surgery, remove part of the brain without them feeling it because the brain has no way to feel pain, okay? So when people do have headaches, typically it's from pressure in the brain. So if a tumor can get so large and it's taking up pressure, it's putting you know, pressure on all the normal structures, causing a lot of swelling, we can get a global headache because of that. But in general, we typically don't get pain here or here in a certain place because of brain tumor. We know that obviously the, by far the vast majority of headaches are not, you know, cancer related and stuff. But when you get into trouble or you have a brain tumor, you mentioned swelling and we know that the swelling process is challenging because unlike if you bruise your arm or if you bruise anywhere else in the body, it grows, right? It's like, oh, it's swollen. We don't realize what a luxury and a blessing that it is swollen is is like the fact that it's swollen is actually a blessing can't swell in here right it's a it's a totally closed space and unfortunately if you've ever heard of primitive brain and midbrain stuff what that means is that's kind of the stuff that's the closest to getting out of this if i understand it correctly the cranium so if you get swelling even from a stroke or a bleed especially externally like we're talking about like bleeding stuff and things that's when you get into trouble because of this herniation concept but that's different than the kind of swelling that you get if it's like a you know, tumor related. We know tumors in general just recruit a bunch of stuff, inflammation, and they just, they just, you know, recruit a bunch of, almost like if you're seeing something on the street on a YouTube video and you see all these kind of onlookers, that's what the inflammation, the immune system does. It comes on and kind of circulates around and that can be problematic, right? And that's why we treat with steroids because sometimes, and, and you know better than me, but a lot of times the swelling and quote unquote edema, the same concept of having like, you know, swelling in your calves when you push you can kind of see a little indentation that oftentimes has worse symptoms than the actual tumor itself so swelling is usually a consequence of irritation of the brain and whether it's physical pressure or whether it is you know actual inflammation or uh, invasion of the tumor into the brain that all cause irritations and edema or vasogenic edema of the brain oftentimes symptoms can be just as bad from the edema as it can the actual tumor itself. And you're right, oftentimes we use steroids as a bridge to get to some form of treatment. So in general, steroids are not a long-term treatment. They can come with their own host of issues long-term, uh, but we use them as a bridge to sort of help symptoms until we can actually get them to surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, whatever it may be. When it is cancer-related, the first thing I'm going to ask is meningioma. The biggest question that I think a lot of people have, even if they're medical, is, you know, now we're talking about, first we'll talk about primary brain tumors, which means it originated there. It, it ain't from something else. It's just where it came from. Like that tissue that was at once in the brain and doing what it's supposed to or in the head all of a sudden goes rogue and gets, you know, some mutations or whatever else to be able to grow in a place that it shouldn't be. The most common question I get in my quote-unquote DMs and stuff is like, is a meningioma cancerous? And I'm sure you get that all the time. Thankfully, the vast majority of meningiomas are benign or non-cancerous. 80 to 85% of meningiomas are, are benign. There's a smaller subset, which we call atypical, uh, about 10%, which are can act more aggressive. Some don't, but can act more aggressive 
have a higher ability to come back even if they're removed. And then there's a very small subset, about 5%, which are malignant, okay, which do act like a cancer. Though they don't spread to other parts of the brain they can just, or the body, they can just become locally recurrent. But the vast majority that we see are meningiomas. They're actually are benign. They're very common. About 1 in 10 women, about 1 in 20 men develop them in their lifetime. Most are small. They grow over years, not One weeks. in how many? 1 in 10 women, 1 in 20 men. Get a meningioma? Yeah. I did not know it was that high. Yeah. So it's actually a very high incidence, but the vast majority are small and the vast majority are asymptomatic. We see a ton of patients who come in that have a headache and they had a uh, they had an MRI which shows an incidental finding of a meningioma. So the vast majority don't need any treatment and the vast majority we just watch with surveillance imaging over time. Where you typically get symptoms is when these meningiomas push on parts of the brain which cause symptoms. They're pushing on a language area and somebody's developing speech issues. They're pushing on the optic nerve and they start having blurred or double vision. They're pushing on a cranial nerve and all of a sudden they start getting facial pain or difficulty swallowing. In the same way, like interrupting, like we do a little radio tracer fancy device thing to, to stop the brainwaves. It's like that. It's literally just saying like, hey, you're not able to communicate. And therefore now we need to like alleviate or take off the pressure off of that thing so it can continue its track. That's right. So the reason why we, inter we intervene on meningiomas for the most part is either they're growing over time on an MRI or they're causing symptoms based on what part of the brain they're pushing on. So that brings us to the conversation of intervening or intervention. I don't even know if intervening is a word, but that's the key is when you have to take out something from what we already established is obviously an extremely intimate area because you just don't really grow it back and it's just so key in you know, the rest of your life and how it functions and it's been developing forever and then it just freezes and stops developing, unfortunately, which is why people don't usually recover from spinal cord injuries and strokes, etc., we want to be very careful to take out just what we need to to reconstitute, you know, whatever the process was, if it was benign, and obviously take out as much as we can if it's quote-unquote malignant, meaning cancerous, meaning it's going to continue to grow without its removal. So the foundational mainstay, at the very beginning at least, was obviously just like take out, take out, take out. Whatever you can resect is better. But then I'm sure, like to do a, a fast-forward thing on the little, you know, on the movie, like, I'm sure they found out that they were taking out too much and these deficits were just too bad. And then therefore, you know, you had to be really calculated on how much you were taking out and you don't want to overtake out. Then you have cancers that are just notorious for not being nice and pretty and enveloped and nice, you know, to resect. And one of those is the scariest one that's a stage four, even if it's a speck, it doesn't matter if it didn't go anywhere, it's still stage four immediately. And that's glioblastoma, multiform, GBM, terrifying. Everyone's heard it because of press and everything. And that's because it's not pretty or enveloped, but it just injects. I mean, it's just literally, if you could think about it, it's just like these little, you know, how an ink like goes and then it, it's kind of like thicker at first and then continues to get thinner. That's just how it happens in any direction. So you don't want to resect all of that liberally like you would for lumpectomy. Lumpectomy, right. you take out the cancer and you're like, dude, I'm going to take out as much as I need to around it to have good tissue, but that's not something that you're given in the brain. And so what we started to do when with the resection, because it's still best for something like GBM, is to say, well, can we at least, like, without taking it out, just kind of radiate everywhere that it was and we know it's probably extending into, and that's called, usually, if it's curative, adjuvant radiation for some tumor types. But basically that means we're going to deliver because we took out the bulk of it, but we know stuff is left behind, right? right? And if I'm, you know, not mistaken, that usually looks like 
30 days or so about just getting in there every single day to do radiation to that quote-unquote bed because you also want to kill the stuff that's been left behind. Glioblastomas really have, have two problems. Number one is that they are infiltrative tumors, just like you said, so that even if you can physically remove all the cells that you can see, there are always cells left behind. They are infiltrative into the normal brain. So there is no way you can, you can surgically remove all of these tumors, okay? The other part is that in general, we typically don't try to get margins in the brain, not like you do in the, in the breast or the lung or whatever it may be, because you run the risk of getting into those eloquent areas of the brain and causing a deficit, okay? So we have to be very careful about how much we remove. Obviously, there is a correlation between how much you can remove and how well patients do, how long it takes until the tumors recur. So we have, but there's a balance between those, okay? And a lot of it is a balance between surgical resection and functional preservation. But you're right, with a glioblastoma, tumor cells are left behind, and if left to their own devices, these tumors will grow back, okay? And so we always supplement glioblastoma with adjuvant chemotherapy and radiation. And so you're right, typically anywhere from three to four weeks after surgery, they receive what we call a full dose of radiation, which is typically 60 gray over the period of six weeks. Uh, so it's typically once a day, five days a week for six weeks. Uh, and Didn't you said four to six weeks after the resection or three to four weeks? That's right. So so it, it depends on how well the patient's doing. But in general, uh, on average, patients start radiation and chemotherapy about four weeks after surgery. Right. And that's the same thing with, you know, solid tumors in the body. But one could understand why that's unfortunate because during that three or four weeks of time, you're, you have cells that you know are left behind. All the data shows that they you know, continue to progress, but they're going untreated. They weren't resected, and they can't be radiated, and systemic therapy is usually started with radiation. So it would be right. ideal, and which is why I'm really excited to have you, if you could start that process sooner and really before it just continues to replicate, because we know these things replicate fast. They grow fast. That's right. But before we get to that, that's GBM. And what about these meningiomas and secondary tumors? I mean, it's not common you do radiation for meningiomas you would, uh, especially if you can't resect. But if you were able to maximally resect a meningioma or a lung cancer that went there or a colon cancer, which usually now we use what's called SBRT or stereotactic radiation, just to kind of quote unquote zap it. In those circumstances, you usually, I guess it depends on the solid tumor, but you resect and the radiation is plus minus, correct? So for meningiomas, if it's benign, we typically don't radiate. For some of the more malignant meningiomas, we do supplement with radiation because okay. we know those will likely come back. For the metastases, whether it's metastases from a lung cancer, breast, colon, we, it's the same process as a glioblastoma. We know that cells left behind will continue to grow. And so we always supplement those tumors with radiation as well. So yes, we use stereotactic radiosurgery and it's to deliver a small amount of radiation to that cavity to, to kill those same cells. And by that, do you mean gamma knife? So there are multiple kinds. So gamma knife, uh, there's cyber knife, there's linear accelerator. Uh, there are multiple kinds of ways you can deliver stereotactic radiosurgery, but it's all ultimately the same, the same end goal, to deliver a very focused, accurate dose of radiation to the brain with, with sparing the normal tissue. So I still remember when I was a fellow or maybe, maybe a third resident, when I said, what is gamma knife or these like, you know, these cyber knife things that you were talking about, it's radiation. It's not an actual knife that's a scalpel that's going into the brain. And I'm like, that's right. how is it not radiation? How is a neurosurgery involved? Can you in 90 seconds for everybody, because I think it's confusing a lot of people, explain why is a neurosurgeon involved in gamma knife? 
why is the radiation doctor involved in Gamma Knife and some of these other therapies? Like, which one is it? Who's, you know, whose court is the ball in? So we really do these cases together. And it's really important because especially as a surgeon who's physically been in that person's brain, we really know the anatomy well. And we can say, listen, you don't need to worry about radiating that point. We really want you to radiate this area. So we really help to uh, discover, you know, what the margins are and really sort of, you know, help the radiation oncologist figure out what's important to radiate and what's not. Okay. The radiation oncologist is, you know, they are instrumental in helping us figure out what is an appropriate dose of radiation to give and how to design a plan that is not going to hurt vital other tissues or nerves, you know, eyes, the pituitary gland and things like that. So it's really important that you work together to really deliver a safe and effective plan. So it's, the radiation is happening the same way as it would in the body, but in this circumstance, it has to do with like really the, what they call confirmation and mapping and all that stuff. It takes both to say this is the way you effectively do it in this insanely intimate area, if I haven't said that enough times already. Right. That's right. Yep. Now to the concept of those circumstances where you want radiation for those residual cells left behind because it's just not worth cutting out a whole nother even one or two millimeters all the way around. It's just not worth it because of the deficits that you're going to have, but you know they're there. Three to four weeks. I had Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, Pulitzer Prize winner of, of Emperor of All Maladies, the author, on last week. And he made this very important concept that I don't think people think about enough. And he said, you know, you have to remember, Sanjay, whatever disease you have, if it's like three sites, four sites, whatever the burden is, there is a replication index day to day and week to week, month to month, that basically spits out all these variants, like kind of like COVID, but all these variations and mutations that could later down the road be that stop responding to therapy. When really it's that this new thing had come out there and is not show itself for, you know, 10, 12 months and everything else has died away. And that is what you want to reduce as quickly as possible. And that really hit home with me because there's so many circumstances where even to get the genomic sequencing or the biopsy and stuff, People don't like me because I'm always like, we need to get this now and I'm trying to rush roll everything. But that's because you want to treat things the soonest because you don't want that, that basically that variability factor to go any longer than you have to. Sure. Which if I understand correctly, that's one of the reasons this really cool novel tool, which is what we talk about in, in Target Cancer Podcast, but what are the newer things that make theoretical sense, but also clinical sense, is to be able to put radiation, start that delivery of radiation right after surgery. Right. And I couldn't believe it when I read it. It's called Gamatile, and these little Lego-looking blocks that have these little rods that deliver the same like radiation novel, like science radiation stuff that you can somehow pack into that cavity, just like the area that you're targeting with radio with radiotherapy. I would say, and I haven't read any of the academic stuff, but it's almost more accurate because at the end of the day, unfortunately, over that four to six weeks when you're going to that machine, it's all conformed and there's variability with moving and stuff. This is actually placed into that cavity on which you resected and hoping to deliver that radiation in 360 degrees confirmationally all around right where it was resected and can begin right after the resection? That's right. So so Gamatile is, is an amazing technology. Uh, it is basically a form of brachytherapy, which means implantable radiation. And so over the course of years, there have been many different kinds of radiation that have, some have worked, some haven't, but ultimately we don't have a, a great thing for the brain right now from a brachytherapy standpoint. Brachytherapy is used all the time for prostate uh, cancer, uh, but until recently, this, this came along for us. And basically it's a type of cesium radiation 
They are uh, uh, in each tile. There are four cesium-131 seeds embedded in these tiles, which are about the size uh, of a postage stamp. And what happens is after somebody like I goes in and removes a tumor, right? No matter how big, no matter what shape, as long as we feel like we can remove nearly all of it or all of it, we can then lay these different tiles within the resection cavity themselves. And what what the nice thing is is that you talk about conformality, and so. We don't have to create some crazy physics-based plan from an external beam radiation because we know I can lay these tiles in at the time of surgery and they are going to fit exactly as I want them to. Like a glove. Even, like a glove. And even as soon as I put these in, the radiation starts working. So all those small cells that we know are left in there, whether it's a glioblastoma, whether it's a metastasis, no matter what it is, the radiation starts working immediately, and you do not have to wait that four weeks that we typically would to give external beam radiation. And so we don't even give the cells a chance to grow back initially. You're During already starting pre, pre time, yeah. So that's absolutely wild, is that you can actually put it in right immediately after. And like we said, you want to theoretically, it's just theory for now, side or reduce, meaning knock out the cells as fast as you can, as early as you can, to keep them from getting these errors. Just like, again, like... We've been through the whole Greek alphabet in COVID. That's because the longer something can persist, the more variants it's going to have. And, and somehow that M protein that all the vaccines are attacking is all of a sudden that M spike, it just looks different. And all of a sudden the things that your lymphocytes are primed and ready to see don't recognize it. And that's because you've had a billion and trillion gazillion different like replications to basically have opportunity for that protein to change. But the big thing for any academician, and which is what I have to be careful about on social media and podcasts and everything else, is it data proven to be equivalent to that? When you said external beam, just so people know, that means you go into the thing and basically they're, they, I mean, it's wicked technology, but is able to basically conform in a whole 360 degrees that area and radiate to it every day for four to six weeks. Is it similar? Is there data for it? Is it pending? Yeah, so this was, this was FDA approved. So initially there was a large clinical trial uh, out of Arizona from 2013 to 2018, which looked at basically any recurrence tumor, right? So uh, they took glioblastoma, uh, meningioma, metastases, and so all these tumors which had initially been treated and then recurred, which were surgically you know, amenable to treatment, went back in, removed the tumor, placed the gamma tile, and they ultimately looked at how did these patients do over time? Did they looked at local recurrence, overall survival, all these things, complication rate, and what they found is, and what ultimately led to FDA approval was that Patients in all these different disease classes did better. The complications rates were low. And so patients were living longer and were having uh, further time to ultimate progression. And so initially this was approved for any recurrent malignant tumor. And then about a year later, they were actually approved for any newly diagnosed or presumed high-grade or malignancy tumor. So, so now not only do we use these in, in patients who have known recurrences of metastases, gliomas, meningiomas, but now we can actually use these in the upfront treatment, which is really changing the way we treat these tumors. And so, you know, one of the best things that we are, that they are doing now is there are two clinical trials that are in the works to sort of see, is this better than the current standard of care? And for metastases, patients are having these resected with gametile implantation, and we're looking at and actively comparing, is this better than the standard of care with, you know, external beam radiation, gamma knife, SRS? And really the goal is, is this not inferior, which means that is it basically equivalent with respect to outcome, but are the rates of leptomeningeal disease and radiation necrosis improved? Because we know 
those can be big trouble with, with large doses of radiation for uh, metastatic disease. From a glioblastoma standpoint, the current gold standard of care, which has been for decades, is resection, followed by what we call the STOOP protocol, chemoradiation therapy, which is that six weeks of radiation every day, and temozolomide, okay? That has been the dogma for decades, and nothing has really changed that. And what we are seeing now, and there is currently a trial, which we've just started, where we are doing upfront treatment with resection plus gametile, and then letting that work for several weeks, four weeks, and then afterwards supplementing with a lower dose of radiation and chemotherapy. And the hope is that, could this move the needle in these patients with these horrible tumors, which hasn't been changed at all for decades? And so the hope is that by doing this implantation up front, these patients are actually going to have a much better quality of life, live longer, and have a much longer progression-free survival for these tumors. That's incredible. We've actually seen some patients who have done extremely well with some very difficult tumors, which have either come back, and we've had a treat for the third, fourth, fifth time. We've used gametile, and they've done well. And then now we've got several patients that we've just started doing these on the upfront glioblastomas. And miraculously, these patients have done well without needing radiation. So it's really going to be interesting once the trial gets going to see how these patients do long term. So we're very hopeful about it. One of the best things about this is, is that there's sort of a built-in compliance. And so for patients who have transportation issues or potentially socioeconomic issues, they can't make it back and forth to radiation uh, for whatever reason you can put this in and it's sort of like a one-stop shop. So they get surgery, plus they get the radiation and they're done. We're having to take all of these measures to really protect the thing that we can't seem to fix or restore. What are some of the things a step for, you know, ahead where it's like in this ideal world where we can say, aha, we can actually regenerate this or support this, right? Everyone talks all the time about stem cells. And I've read data on stem cells helping, helping autism. You know, it's one thing to use stem cells in, you know, joints and stuff. That all makes sense. Even uh, PRP, platelet therapy, they're granulated. All that stuff makes sense. But really to re-instigate or re-perpetuate this cascade that just is designed to just start when you're born. And, you know, that's why you don't have kids that are three and four necessarily in wheelchairs because you still continue to have that growth and then it just halts, right? As I understand, it's like five years old or so. Then all of a sudden it's just frozen. What are we doing? Is there anything promising that we can hope for and look forward to, to say, oh, even if we cut off a little bit, we'll just squeeze this stuff in there and all of a sudden this stuff will regenerate. Tell me you have the answer. <laughs> you know, I wish. I mean, I, I would say that there's a lot of work going on with stem cells for, for brain tumor and different cancers. I don't think any of it's ready for prime time yet. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that within the next you know years or decades, maybe we will, but I don't think right now we're there. I will say though that the brain, despite all the eloquence that we have has a tremendous ability to be plastic and sort of reorganize. And so we see some patients who you can remove a tumor from, you know, the temporal lobe, they have a speech deficit. And then over time that can sort of reshift and change and patients can actually, you know, have the ability to speak again. Now, again, that's not in everybody and that's not in everything, but it is amazing how the brain can reorganize itself and have some redundant systems and pathways where people can actually improve after deficit whether like it be, fail stops so it's not that yeah. it's growing back but it's just has this kind of like thing where you got to shake the dust off of change the yeah. you know just kind of like you know like an engine the charges on and just say and then it'll wake up and basically take over what has been removed that's interesting so yeah. you know as, as a tangent to that the thing i always say i'm inpatient i hope i'm not incorrect because this is what i learned in residency was the whole concept of rehab 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 re-stimulation 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 after a stroke or anything else surgery 
But the thing I stress, and I hope I'm not incorrect, is that doing it as closely as after the injury, as I understand it, is, is more effective than waiting four weeks, just like the same way of doing radiation. Is that true? Do you get this kind of wakening and dusting of the stuff and to really aggressively hit it as early as you can? Anybody who has any sort of deficit, whether it be speech or, you know, swallowing, speaking, any of these things, you know, you know strength, balance, all these things, we really advocate for, for rehab because uh, you, you're absolutely right. The soonest you can do it, uh, the, the, the better people can get improved. So even if it's a simple thing, you know, occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, all those things are tremendously important. Dr. McCracken, you are awesome. I can't believe I got to talk to a cool neurosurgeon. This has been awesome. But we appreciate you. It sounds like everyone can find you anywhere in the Atlanta area or otherwise. That's where I got married with Smyrna, Smyrna um, the little outlier from Atlanta. But they can find you at Piedmont. They can find you in Atlanta if anyone's considering, you know, and especially if they're younger, it sounds like, again, this is not medical advice, but it sounds like if you're younger, 30s, 40s, and you have these brain, you know, issues, and especially if you're looking for curative stuff, like the long-term, you know, the long-term hope and planning should be a part of that treatment decision. And it sounds like gametile is a more precise. The data shows that and potentially less, you know, long-term side effects. And it's being studied as we speak to see if it's at least the same, uh, if not better. That's right. You know, if you're living with a brain tumor, struggling with it, there's a ton of support out there for you. Certainly, we at Piedmont are always happy to, you know, entertain, you know, helping you or discussing a case with you uh, or really anybody else out there. So you can, if you're interested in Gamatile, their website's fantastic. You can see all the different centers across the country who are using it uh, anywhere that's close to you as well. So, you know, Sanjay, I just so appreciate you having me on and um, thank you. Thank you. Of course. And can they find you on social media or is it just mostly Piedmont? Yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and uh, Twitter. All right. Well, Jay, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Thank you.